Revivify, design and building pros podcast. Hi, this is Grace Mace. I'm super excited to have June here. June Grant is the founder and principal of Blank Lab Architecture. And I've known June for over a decade and a half, and she is one of the tough lady and just what I would like to call a badass. And I have tremendous respect <laughs> for her. So welcome, June. Hi, Grace. It's great to talk to you. And we have known each other for more than 20 years. Oh, there we go. <laughs> just to be precise. And I watched you how you transform your career and even pre-architecture school and how you started. I would love to for the audience to learn about how you transform over the years and through a very interesting path. So if you mind share with us that story. Uh, yeah, you want the origin story? The origin story. Uh, so I'm, I'm originally from Jamaica, a uh, small country, and ever since I was maybe five years old, I have been attracted to construction sites and watching, um, you know, how a piece of land goes from zero to a house or a building of some type and just find that whole transformation process to be mind-blowing seeing all these men and women on the side things are moving and then suddenly there's identifiable forms and then it's a closed building and that interest around physical space and shape had always been with me but growing up in a country that was predominantly patriarchal even though we're a matriarchal society there's some there's some occupations that were not open to women and architecture was one of them or i didn't even know there was such a thing as actually architecture i just knew i liked buildings but i studied accounting and business for some time before um, when i graduated from college in jamaica then migrated to the u.s and after a period of time decided that okay i was gonna go study what i really wanted to study which was architecture at that time i was working at a financial investment firm doing stock analysis, but at night taking studio art and sculpture at the Art Students League in New York, an amazing resource. And so I had this double life. I had a life of Wall Street stock analysis in the daytime and at nighttime being in the studio until one in the morning and then heading home to sleep for a few hours and repeat. Um, and then when we met in, at Yale School of Architecture, the summer program, was for me one of the greatest experiences because I was finally pursuing the big dream, which was to study architecture. And um, But my perspective, I remember when I started, I felt kind of behind some of the students while I was really good at perspective drawing and, and could teach it. Um, what I realized that some of the students, like yourself, came with, you know, deep architecture or architectural language and skill sets that were not which was not my background and my approach was more on i could not see things from a history and a his uh, an accounting perspective economic perspective but not economic of profit more about there's more to architecture than creating a beautiful building that there are people and culture and, and economic impact that that somehow as a studio we were not addressing because that wasn't what was being taught. Um, but at the same time, I had a passion for technology and, you know, avant-garde, how should I say, approaches 
that were non-traditional. And maybe those non-traditional approaches appealed to me because I didn't come from a straight architecture background. Um, and so in a large respect, when we graduated, what was that, 99, when we graduated, I was firmly on the technology path and uh, chose to work with firms that were looking at the building and tech building technologies rather than looking at the building, the object, a beautiful building. I'm still firmly engaged in emerging technologies and what they can do because I am interested in the advancement of society, not just the delivery of a building. Um, and so that interest in technology and interest in the society, um, I decided to work with a firm called Dim Jim, uh, which is now AECOM, one of the largest architecture and engineering firms in the world. And the reason why I chose to work with Dim Jim was because I was going to be able to work with one of my dream clients, which was NASA, and um, a child being a child of of you know Star Trek. Um, there is no way I would have I would have given up the opportunity to lead a team that would design a building for NASA, but not just any building, but a building that would be that would integrate smart technology where we're where we're monitoring the air quality and monitoring the light levels in the space and transforming electrical lights in response to light needs and only turning on the air conditioning systems for those who need optimal use. Um, and so this this desire around a building that was smart and more responsive to the environment is kind of a, a culmination of going back to my roots, which was I was always sensitive to the environment and how that influences how we build. And, um, and that's still how I approach things today. I'm still very much interested in the economic impact of the building, but that economic impact has now uh, transitioned to not just the cost of running the building and making sure I'm paying as little as possible for lights, but how can I have next to zero impact on the land and, um, so that the building is more of an asset to community than an expense. And I, this is a good segue because you, to me, you possess everything what architects should be doing. And you have the knowledge and you have the experience. And I want to get into a little bit more detail. To me, you're, you're a renowned ADU expert in this country. What ADU stands for is Accessory Dwelling Unit. And you've been working diligently with low-income families and helping them to think about ways. So I'd love for you to talk about a little bit on that. Yeah, my my, I was literally dropped into the accessory dwelling unit space because my studio, my office, I run it on a 70-30 split. And 70-30 is 70% private clients who pay full fee, and then 30% are community projects. And basically those community projects are either low fee or no fee or they're sub supported by grants. And those projects are basically anything the community comes to me and says, can I look at it? And um, I've not received a request where I said no. Um, and so I was working with one community around a library initiative, which I'd like to have a library built in their community. They hadn't had one for about 40 years. And one of the residents in that community said she wanted to build an in-law unit and could I design one for her? Um, now, you have to understand that while I 
could design an in-law unit for her, I recognize that she would never have been able to afford to build the unit. And my interest is making sure we deliver an outcome that's physical. I'm, I'm less about leaving something on paper. But in talking to her, she revealed that her family was actually the fifth generation in that house. So this, we're not talking about, and the, and the image that I think the majority of America has of African-Americans is that they, A, they're renters or they don't own. But that negates the history of the Great Migration. And her family was one of the um, families that came from the South to, came to the West, came to Oakland to work in the shipyards. And as a result, they bought land and built their houses five generations ago. So this was a fifth generation um, homeowner, and she explained that her community, their historic families had been selling the homes because now they had gone from worth practically nothing to being worth millions because the economy had, had been so aggressive. Um, and so they had these beautiful big houses that they were selling for millions. And my thought was that was wrong. They actually should reap the, the asset value and build an in-law unit and increase their local wealth. The wealth was the fact that they owned this house, which is now valuable. And most of these parcels had space to build an in-law unit. So her story about being a, a, a child of the Great Migration and this economic story that these families were selling instead of reinvesting made me take a look at not just designing the in-law unit, but rather the economic positive that the in-law unit could be. And if we could find a way to help these historic homeowners to reinvest in their property by building another small unit on that parcel, then what I would be doing was helping to solve an income and wealth problem um, and that was far more important than actually designing just a single in-law unit. So her request to build one in-law unit became this massive study about, okay, how many in-law units do we need in Oakland so, so that we can retain the African-American population in Oakland? Um, and then that, that expanded to be, well, who else is being forced off their land because it was now valuable? And where are they going? Right. Um, and that's how the story began. It became a single request, became a cultural story, became an economic impact story. And then AARP somehow heard about what I was doing and they um, sponsored design of, of three units, three models, which they gave, which they give away to their, the designs are given away to their members. And it became a national story because I was focused on four cities, Oakland, Deep. Denver, um, DC, and um, I forget the last one. Oh, Austin. Um, and we're still working on it. And in fact, um, just this week, I was selected to be a cohort for the Yerba Center for the Arts, where they're going to be sponsoring continued focus on the design effort, but pivoting to integrate how in-law units are also a solution for the arts um, community because we are losing our, um, the arts community is being forced out of Oakland as well um, because they simply can't afford to pay existing rents. And now we're looking at how can in-law units and an economic strategy around that assist artists in staying local. Well, first of all, congratulations. This is a huge endeavor. And 
when you talk about economic story and so forth and changing the effect of the fabric of a city. And currently, my understanding, in the Bay Area, the homeless uh, situation is pretty serious. And having it's, these it's ADU, embarrassing. Right. And having these 80 units will help to make it more affordable for people to live in. And even as a transition. Absolutely. State, right. And that would change the entire fabric of the city or, or the community. That's I'm really excited to learn more about it. And I'm really glad that you're spearheading this effort because that makes a huge difference, not only looking at what's going on with your community, but overall as a how we address the systemic issue with homeless problems. Yeah, and, and the the other part about the in-law units, um, in addition to the homeless, is that very little of the conversation is about the actually the next wave. And the next wave is actually the elderly community, the average age of the homeless population in San Francisco is 50. Not, not, not young and strung out. It's 50. And it's because, 50 and above, and it's because after 50, you typically have some kind of major medical disaster that happens that results in a massive medical bill. And that medical incident snowballs into not being able to pay mortgage or fall back on mortgage payments. And all of a sudden, you're forced to sell the house that you've been living in, and then you're on the streets. And so the bigger concern for me while doing the study and starting to look at the census data was one, because I work with data quite a bit and looking at the map and I realized, oh, we've been talking about the existing homeless, but we're not talking enough about the ones that are coming next. Right. And if we don't build, we are going to see an even greater um, number of elderly on the street because we have no system in place for uh, elder care and senior care. And um, so that's my focus on the in-law units has been less about homeless and more about stabilizing existing homeowners and giving them a pathway to be able to help with existing family members, teachers, nurses, everybody who's a service worker, restaurant workers. Um, my, my focus on in-law units has been about that tier um, that we talk about but haven't done much about. And uh, they are actually the next most vulnerable, which we're seeing currently with the pandemic. Exactly. I was thinking with the current pandemic, with the economy uh, extremely unstable, and they yeah. are the most vulnerable group of folks that will impact dramatically, just like anything. And having a systematic way of just a shelter that's, that's affordable, that they can live in, and able to, by one of some four, can draw some income while they continue to um, sustain in this economy is huge. So it doesn't tip it's them huge. over to the other side. And right. And most of the solutions I have seen, um, you know, we are, as architects, we're always critique and design. Um, <laughs> but one of the things I've noticed that the conversation tends to be about providing shelter and not about providing a home. Right. And so that, for me, is concerning because as an architect, um, very much interested in the design. I'm also interested in what is the impact on the community and how can we make sure we're designing homes and providing homes and what is a home versus what is shelter. And I agree we need to provide 
um, something that deals with health, safety, and welfare of the individual. But we are more than a functioning body. And I really hope that we start to talk about the quality of the environments that we're creating along a street, a lot in that home. It, I think it's essential that we take a look at design of in-law units and their impact from a humanist approach, from a human-centered approach, from a community-centered approach, not just a building technology approach. Now, I'm sure everyone understands why I respect this woman. She is just <laughs> incredible. Something I know, well, you talked about creating homes for these elderly and so forth. Do, and you also, in the past, your experience working, integrating technology into homes. How yes. have you done so with these ADU units? So my design approach uh, addresses a couple of things. Uh, they all come with, they're designed all with solar panels. Um, and we're also looking at installing pneum uh, pneumatic heating systems, water-based systems that flow in the floor. So they're more floor-based than pushed air or pushed heating systems. Um, and for, for a couple of reasons why I'm looking at um, pneumatic systems rather than forced air in spaces is that as you get older, you're more sensitive to temperature swings. And so having the floor, having the heat come from the floor, which is actually how we used to design way back when, right. having the heat come from the floor so that the heat rises through the space is actually how air travels. Heat rises. Right. What we have been designing in the past is centralized systems that, and you push the air from the top because we put the HVAC systems in the ceiling and then, we're, then you need a pump to push the air down to where we're occupying the lower floor. You know, we actually sit more than we stand. Right. Uh, and so most of uh, my in-law units are actually raised enough so that we can install a uh, floor-based heating system, whether it's water-based or air, uh, and it's pushed from the floor going up. So we keep the heat, the heated zone in the floor, not in the ceiling. Um, all the units have uh, quite a bit of, of um, windows, but also skylights so that we can have light descending from above, not just from the side. And then I'm also beginning to look at the actual wall uh, technologies so that there, there, there's always been a little bit of inefficiency with the two by four wood frame construction. And so our system is actually based on a two by six so that we get a higher R value in the wall design. I haven't fully figured out, uh, and we haven't had enough time actually just focused on the wall itself, but that's a key factor in, in making sure that the unit is as efficient as possible. And then the long term, what I would like the units to be, if we have enough installed, say, on a block, you know, back to back parcels, is that we're able to have a community-based uh, wastewater treatment system, which is plant-based, but that's really long-term. And that requires, you know, more than just the individual homeowner, but a whole community coming together to say, we're going we're gonna to triple plumb the buildings and create our own wastewater treatment system on site. And that's really looking, you know, five, 10 years out. And the reason why I'm looking at wastewater treatment systems and how we adjust them as a networked community-based system is that our infrastructure in the streets have not grown. Mm -hmm. Our pipelines have not grown, but our populations have increased and our water use has increased. And so we have to become more efficient at the source 
of our wastewater, which is where we're flushing our toilets. Um, and so we reduce what goes into the sewer system and what goes into our stormwater systems. So long-term, I am looking at community, community-based in-law units so that the in-law units operate as a almost a net zero impact on the land, not just water and air and energy use, but can we create networked infrastructure systems that are localized? But that's really looking out. But that's fantastic. Oh. These, these, I mean, what you propose, all the sustainable solutions from energy to water to sewage, everything all together makes complete sense. And as a community level, that's where all this management really becomes effect, efficient and can actually have a more positive output than beyond the community. We had to take a little break because there was an issue with the transformer. So... Um, power outage and internet connection uh, disruption. So we're now back in our conversation with June Grant. So timing was interesting as we were discussing about sustainable designs and so forth. And yet in our current dates, things like transformer disruptions could actually cause a lot of um, headaches. And so um, June would love to dig a little bit deeper about sustainable design. So lots of <laughs> the water management, sewage that, management. That, yeah, that was a rather funny and poignant break in our conversation with the transformer right. um, going out. And and goes back to the point about why I am interested in um, the accumulation of um, not just the, the mere accumulation of more in-law units, but how can we connect in-law units as a system? How can we use the buildings themselves? Um, to provide uh, not just independence, but, um, and, and yes, it is independence because like with your power going out, if, if, if all the roofs in your, on your block had been connected to create your own mini solar grid, you wouldn't be dependent on the transformer in your neighborhood, right? You, you'd be able to, in theory, continue working. We wouldn't have had that disruption. Your life continues. Um, and that is that is part of how I am looking at the design of the in-law unit itself is it is one node in a bigger network networked system. Um, and that's really how cities work is that the, the houses themselves currently are attached to a power grid, right? They're attached to some other kind of infrastructure network, but the house itself, has not been exploited for what it does and what it has. And I'm looking at the roof as a exploitable surface that actually gives the homeowner and the occupant greater independence and your ability to save. Um, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm really want the in-law unit to reduce expenses, um, your living expenses. Um, not just that the the in-law unit is cheaper than an apartment in terms of rent, which they typically are. They're typically rented at a lower uh, monthly rate than an apartment. But also I'm interested in what are your monthly expenses? Can we really, as designers, really embrace an environmental approach um, in the design of the building so that we address monthly cost, operation costs? If, this, if you are a business, a GM, a GE, 
your operations department will want to know how much is this new building going to cost us to, to be operable every month. And they're going to look to be as efficient as they can. And my view is we should be looking at monthly expenses in our design process. Um, we do not, if we don't, we're not, we're not moving society forward. We're just inching while dragging past weight. And I think we can do much better and we should take advantage of that. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that's probably three quarters of how I'm looking at the in-law unit. And then I'm also looking at providing space to grow your own food. Now I have to say I'm not a gardener. I, you know, I can kill any plant <laughs> successfully. Um, but I am looking at the fact that can we grow our own herbs? Can we provide you enough space if your in-law unit is in the backyard? Can we integrate a vine system attached to the in-law unit that is that is that becomes your garden or that provides you a space to grow a climbing flower but some kind of integration of greenery or designed to accommodate greenery as part of the solution to that unit um, so that you don't necessarily have to walk out into the yard but it is right there that, that there you have the ability to have plants right at your window. Um, so I'm kind of looking at that as, well, as food sustainability as well as environmental sustainability. I love it. This whole sustainable design is not just exclusive on the building envelope per se, but actually inclusive as, as human, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we need to breathe, we need to uh, you know, use water to clean ourselves and whatnot. Yeah, and is- and what I'm hoping is that that and maybe this is kind of utopian, but if say you are interested in peppers, and I am not, right. I might be interested in oregano. We can trade. Yeah. Your pepper plant, you know, you can you only use just so many peppers in right. your food, and I can only use just so much oregano. And my next door neighbor might be growing sunflowers. We can start to trade. Right. At this point, we have spent nothing at the supermarket and have started to bring back um, a little bit more responsibility around our own food supply and having a little bit more agency and control over what we use and how how much um, we can provide for ourselves without it being this major deal, without us taking out a gar- gardening hat right. um, and assuming some kind of bigger role in farming. Um, but more being able to provide just the things that we're interested in as part of our life. I'm actually interested in designing more life solutions than just shelter. And that, I think that's a brilliant idea. It also brings back the human touch of it. It's no longer you drive, you know, take your car, drive down to the supermarket, expel some carbon dioxide and trading paper money and get your goods and drive back home is now is you're in the community and whoever has surplus, they can provide that and vice versa. You trade in for other goods. Um, same with electricity and water usage. And I think just that holistic approach is truly brilliant. Yeah. I, I'm, I, I am very much interested in, in trying to create a circular economy around the in-law unit, and I and I want your listeners to know I am not a 
someone who goes hiking and wears only cotton clothing and, you know, handmade shoes. I am looking at this purely from the position of what I think we have ignored for some time. And we need to start to pivot back and really be responsible around the built environment and to be as open in trying to solve as many things as we can as we're designing a home or as we're designing any building. Can we try to solve for other things in addition to what the homeowner is asking? Right. Can we do more? I'm always looking to do more. Right. And more with a human touch of just being here, yeah. respecting each other. And just even comparison of going to grocery shopping to get a bell pepper versus a neighbor offering or have a bell pepper surplus for you to take and enjoy the meal feast together. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, and I think part of why I'm interested in, in this uh, collective economy, if you want to, is... I'm originally from Jamaica. I'm used to, when I grew up, someone could be walking down the street and we would have, I think we had a guava plant and we had mango trees and, and someone would knock on the gate and ask if they could come in and pick some mangoes. And we would say, yeah, they, you know, you pick some for us and take as much as you want. Because as a family, we can't eat all the mangoes that are on the mango tree. <laughs> uh, and so that person was able to take as much as they wanted. And if they sold it in the market, that's great. But the point was that that food did not go wasted. And right. since I live in the U.S., what I've seen is I've seen many homes with beautiful lemon trees and fruit trees, and the fruit go wasted uh, simply because, as a society, we're no longer offering surplus that we have. And we're not allowing others to knock on our gate, individuals we do not know, to say, can I pick? And we have lemons and plums just rotting on the trees. And yet we will drive to Trader Joe's to buy plums. Right. Ironic. Ironic. And so that is, I can't solve for all human behavior, but I can try to encourage a recognition that, hey, there's another part of behavior that we can start to integrate, and that's trust. And when you build a law unit in the back of your home, you're saying you're inviting a stranger, most likely, to live on your property. And part of that requires trust. And that requires exchanging greetings. And that also may require other things. So there is both an ecological interest in my part, but also a sociological interest, which is how do we get back to being um, more embracing of humanity right. and more welcoming? And I'd like to go again a little bit deeper. I know you mentioned earlier about ADU trends and across the country. I know a lot of time people think about ADU start from the West Coast because of housing and needs and so forth. Um, what's your experience looking at the, just ADU units spreading nationwide? Nationwide, yes. Um, you know, there's all the granite flat has existed everywhere, everywhere. Um, the fact that we now call them accessory dwelling units is an urban code uh, term, right? Um, because in the code, the building code, you had 
an accessory structure, which was anything in some, in some cities, anything that's smaller than 150 square feet and is not, yeah, that was it. That was it. Anything smaller than 150 square feet and it was a single story, it was considered accessory structure and it was where you put your shed. And that's used in the urban context. But the granite flat has been around forever. And that is, there are some cities, um, one of my favorites, which really got me involved in looking at the smaller structures, the small backyard cottage, the granny flat, the in-law unit, they've been around forever. Um, one city I absolutely love, and I'm consistently studying um, up in Oregon. I'm not going to mention the city because so many people have gone there. But I am going to say that for over 100 years, they have had smaller structures in the back. And these, the city is over 150 years old. So some of these structures are that old, but it's been a, it's been a type of structure, type of unit of living that was around since the building of the railroads and um, are now used as student housing, senior housing, artist studio. Uh, one of my really good friends um, lived in a cottage that was one of those. And um, what this city did was because there were so many and they were in the back. And like, if you're driving any, most major cities, especially in Denver, you have the carriageway in D.C., you have the back alley, which was where the garage entry was, where you had, you had a separate road to get into your garage because the garage structure was at the back of the house, in the back of the lot. Um, and so a lot of those alleyway structures, old garage structures in D.C. and Denver um, are being converted into living units to be studios. It's in, D in Denver, they're called carriage houses um, or carriageway. In, um, in D.C., they don't have a specific name for them. I think they call them accessory residential units, ARUs instead of ADUs. Mm. Um, but it's everywhere. It's, it's, it, what is new is instead of building a new structure, what the codes have allowed us to do is to look at these smaller structures that we have not been using because the old garage was too small. You know, the growth garages were built when a lot of these old garages were built when it was still horse and carriage or the first Model T, or the cars were much smaller, right. is what I mean. And so the garage structures are no longer big enough for current cars. And so, but they're ideal to convert or add a floor on top and rent out. Uh, and that's what the new codes allow across um, almost, I think almost every major city has accessory dwelling unit codes now because all the major cities have um, huge, uh, aggressively rising rent uh, rates and um, while incomes have remained flat. And so this, the hope is that um, we will begin to convert a lot of these larger underused structures to become affordable units and that this will allow um, a pathway for those who are approaching retirement or who have retired and the house is too big and they need to or wish to um, downsize to a smaller living accommodation that they can that they can maintain and so and rent out the main house. So this is both on uh, wealth and health 
an affordable housing pathway that I find really fascinating. And I think if we embrace it, it becomes, it begins to put, I think, our population back on a more secure footing in terms of housing affordability and income, um, being able to manage your income better. That makes sense. In terms of your your rent is now lower. Right. Also, if I'm older, I will not wish to climb up to the second floor to clean two or three bedrooms um, that my kids used to live in. And then I'm now, what, 70, 80, and trying to maintain this mammoth house that everyone comes to once a year. Uh, At some point, it becomes too much. And not everyone wishes to go to a senior living center. And why should they? But being able to stay on your own parcel of land and move into the in-law unit or the carriage house allows that flexibility to rent out the bigger house. Absolutely. And then as you're descri- describing this in-law units, um, and also just looking at not just a demographic that's older, retiring and so forth, but also the other side of the spectrum, younger demographic, they're looking for a home office. Many of them, they do work remotely and having this to be multi-purpose room to be able to convert into their home office instead of um, potentially renting out, but this now becomes their business hub. Yeah, and I think you know, with the pandemic, that the light is the it's the pandemic is shining the light on that need too, and that was one of the things I, I, that got me really attracted to this little town in Oregon was how many of these smaller structures were actually being used for as home offices or home business. So if you're a jewelry maker, um, you have a space to to work in. Um, if you're a seamstress, you had a space to work in. And so these cottage industries could exist within the literal cottage. Right. And what I saw happening was that there was this circulation where people, the population of the city actually preferred to walk on the alleyways because that's where they were taking care of their business. The seamstress was on the alleyway. Mm-hmm. The jewelry maker was on the alleyway. The alleyway led to the co-op. Um, hardly anyone walked on the main streets. And so I recognize that, um, yeah, the, the pandemic is, is definitely shining a light on the need for us to address working from home and accessible dwelling units will also play a part in that. Absolutely. And I think the brilliant part is how versatile it can be. Um, I mean, the house, the, would be, the home would still be there. And through the residents living that or occupying that space can convert into multiple usage. Mm-hmm. Yep, but you can't with your main house. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I I I am truly fascinated by it, and I think that's the only reason why I'm fascinated by the myriad of possibilities with in-law units. I actually see them as DNA um, from which many things can spring. Right. Um, and. The thing that, and it, and it harks back to my studio motto, which is staying small, thinking big, that stuff like this, where on its own looks like this minor thing, the small, oh, it's a small house, no big deal. But when you look at it, the wider macro implications, that's when it becomes truly fascinating for me is, is if we really embrace it, what it could be to. Uh, it takes stress off the main house. It allows you to start up your business from home. And if the business grows, you can then move out and the house can be rented out for income. 
but it allows so much more flexibility and it allows you to work from home. And maybe later you graduate from home and you maybe work in a co-working space where you need to have dialogue and you'd like to have meetings that are not at your home. But it's a pathway to growth, which I, economic growth, which I think is also very fascinating. I love it. I love the concept of stay small and think big because that's what ADU unit is all about. And what you have delivered over the years with your studio is that really stay true. And it has such an impact into what's going on in the society in this space of the residential expansions of make it affordable housing and also allow people to stay longer in their units or their homes as much as possible and also have the comfort of a simple, smaller unit to retire into. Yeah, and then can we just pivot a little bit to another part that we haven't spoken about, which is how do you get it built? Yes. The thing that, so you and I participated in the Yale building project. (laughs) (laughs) We know the experience of literally building and being on the construction site. Our thumbs were quite bruised, I I remember the first time. Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever done anything dirty. I'm an urban kid. Right. Um, And part of my design solution around the in-law unit is I am interested in my my build-out process uses local labor. And it is part of the, um, and maybe it is romantic, but the idea of the barn raise, the barn raise is people in the community help to build the barn wall and, we, and they all raise it. And that's usually in the rural environment. What the year building project taught us was that as students, we could come together, put the wall, the stud, the stud wall together on the ground and then raise it up. That's a barn raise. Yes. You raise the wall, the framing up in place. We were all students. There is no, the, the, I think the in-law unit is... At the end of the day, in its most simplistic form, is a shed with water attached to it, a shed and power. So if we keep our minds around the fact that it's actually a simple building structure, then why not tap into local skill sets? Yes. Why not use community effort to, if I give you a set of plans and I tell you, you know, it's the studs are 16 inches on center or 24 inches on center, this is how hall the wall is. We send you or someone is a site foreman, just like we had as your students. You have a site foreman who tells you, okay, this is how you build the wall. You give each other, everyone comes with their framing hammer, boom, boom, boom. We slam the nails into the stud, you raise the wall. That's local skill set coming together to build a house. And I think that builds community spirit. But it also taps into the fact that it's a simple structure. We shouldn't make it more complex than it needs to be. Right. That I'm also interested in. Can I provide a set of building instructions, instructions to a local community, give them a site foreman and say, you know, we've done, we've done the foundation for you. Now you can do the walls, take it over from here. Here is the person who's going to guide you through that process. Can we come together around that? And the reason why I became attracted in lo- using local labor is we're short of construction labor. So I'm looking to find a way to, can we use the in-law unit as a teaching method about construction and from that hopefully encourage others to become involved with the construction industry. Now, 
build bigger buildings require more sophisticated skill sets, but you got to start somewhere. And so my thought is, well, you know, can I do this? And so that is also a component of how I'm designing the unit is the overall goal long-term is to solve it, um, be able to create a set of drawings that is not just architectural drawings, but they're actually construction drawings that you can take in a simplified format, hopefully like an IKEA instruction. It's like, okay, here's what it really needs to look like. And here's your site foreman who's going to help you. I love so it. So you can build it yourself. That makes complete sense. Just like back to the um, stay small, think big, and start from small project, learn the basic skill sets or understanding of how to read a plan, construction documents. And yeah. begin to build and having that hands on experience to be able to then create something bigger than they had before. And that yep. itself is very powerful. That's what I'm hoping. I love it. That, that is my, that is my desire is to as much as possible, not be as much as possible to not be a patron and give things, but rather show a person how to make things for themselves. And I'm far more interested in that. Right. And just like the old saying, Rather than give them fish, they they would. I think what was it? Give them fish. teach a man how to fish. There yeah, <laughs> yeah. They will last much That's longer. my desire. And like you said, our construction labor shortage is definitely an issue that's on many people's mind, and that itself is not going to go away anytime soon until no. we start doing something about it and creating a pathway or a roadmap for them to start somewhere. Whether it's learning about construction ADU, learn learn how to read plans all the way through building for larger construction projects, and that yes. also increases for job opportunities and also the more economic, you know, the community sustainable environment. Yeah, yeah, that that is that is uh, my goal and and how I'm approaching the design solution. And um, so, in a way, I've made the you know design task far more complicated than than it could be but i think is as complex as it should be that i should be attempting to address wider issues than just it being a beautiful object right and think big but start small yes (laughs) i love it well you have been an inspiration to me for many years and i'm so glad i got a chance to speak with you how, I mean, what would you advise someone who's starting and what advice would you give them? Um, well, there, there are two things, I think. Um, the first is just do it. And this goes out to particularly young girls and women. As kids, we tend to allow boys to run around acquire their scabs on their knees and say, you know, they'll have to learn. And then we pamper the girls and keep them closer to our hips and they don't get as many scars. And that's changed over time, but we're still very much keeping girls away from acquiring their own scars. But when it comes to wanting to create something physical, you have to go do it. You, you have to raise it. You have to get comfortable with raising a hammer. You have to get comfortable with using a saw. You have to get comf- comfortable with using these machines and being in environments that typically you'll not see a thing, uh, single female. Or you may, 
Oh, uh, if you're lucky. I was just lucky enough that I have been, I, as an immigrant, you, you have to just get out there and go find the thing that you're interested in. I was just lucky enough to have walked into environments where I saw other women welding and saw other women working with their hands to make physical objects and big objects, not small decorative objects. Um, and I really encourage anyone who's interested in the built environment that you have to just go out there and sometimes you just have to buy the saw that you've never used before and ask someone to show you how to do it. You have to not wait for permission, but to just go out and do the thing that you're interested in. Now, that said, um, there is risk. And so you have to make sure that you're not doing things just because, but that you've put in place security measures. Like for, like, for example, the irony of your starting Bay Rep, right, Grace? <laughs> yes. Uh, you, but you've been in the industry for a long time, and you also experience the downside. Of course. And, and, and that is the... That is the environment that we're in, is that to build also involves risk. To work with a saw also involves risk, that you, you have to make sure that you put some safety measures in place. And you're not always going to know uh, your blind spot. You're not always going to be aware that you didn't check where the cord was before you made a step. Um, but you have to try to plan for those moments where you may not be paying attention. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I actually, one is we've been friends for, for decades, but two, BayRap for me begins to address a major component in the residential market, which is transparency around how a project gets built and transparency around all the legal pitfalls or pitfalls that women have been trapped in in the past because they had no control um, and they had no transparency in how these decisions were being made. And that is absolutely essential um, to improve this industry. But also, if you wish to grow in anything, being able to see how decisions are being made and how they come together is absolutely paramount. And I'm hoping, um, I'm seeing quite a few financial models being proposed to homeowners how to acquire a mall unit. I'm hoping more individuals use your tool, your software, to actually build their project, to manage their project. Because as, as much as we want to provide more affordable housing and build in-law units, Financing of the construction and transparency around that process is still very vague. And there are very few tools out there that start to make it less ambiguous and more transparent. And you're one of the your tool is one of the few. And that's essential so that seniors do not lose their homes or do not feel as if they're caught in a process simply because they've never done construction before. Wow. Thank you so much for the vouching for me. That means the world to me. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. The reason I decided to pursue and building this Bay Rep together is really help empower women. 
and yeah. people are less informed about the construction process. Bring transparency so everyone can be on the same page and collaborate versus focus on ways to, or just not, perhaps unintentionally ignore the process and, and the billing, the details of what it takes to get things built. And the mm -hmm. other part, this is maybe my more my uh, personal reason. I want to sh for the family to be able to, for the kids to be able to see, watch their parents, especially their mom, to take the project and, and be in control of the whole situation, able to build something. And that empowers little girls to understand the process. Anything is possible. They can they can watch you know their parents be the role model in building something home that's you know creating beautiful space for them. And that starts from very early on. And that is my 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 personal interest. Why this to me is important to just raise awareness and bring transparency and force accountability and collaborate to create more better space and for people to be empowered throughout the whole process. Nothing to add. <laughs> I, I'm so inspired by this discussion with you. So if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, the best way to get in touch with me is jgrant, just by email, jgrant at blink, B-L-I-N-K dash lab dot com. That's jgrant at blink dash lab dot com. Well, thank you so much for taking all the time and share with our audience and share with me and, and continue to inspire me. And I now hopefully everyone, now you understand why I just love this woman. She is incredible. <laughs> she's inspiring. She's motivating. She said her, her movement that she's creating, that she's leading is so powerful. And of course, you always have my support and I love you and just grateful for you. I appreciate, I appreciate um, having the moment to talk about what we're working on and but also being able to talk about it, not just as friends, but in, um, with a determined, a term, determination to create some impact around what we talk about, that there are others who are also interested in what we're talking about. I think that's essential that we spread the word to be more visible. Absolutely. Well, June, thank you so much for your time and all your great insights. And I'm excited and I learned a lot from this discussion. Thank you. I'll talk to you again. Absolutely. Talk to you soon. <laughs> all right. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Revivify Podcast, where we talk with June Grant about her vision of building in-law units in cities where the cost of living is becoming prohibitive to at-risk communities. She's already seen these units allow families to keep their home and properties, but that's just the beginning. She envisions the world where these units provide low-cost quality homes to protect the minority family's land, keep our elderly from becoming homeless, and our artistic communities close. I hope you enjoy her innovative ideas and are encouraged that real change is possible and it's already in the works. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time. Brought to you by Bayrap.